0: Well, today is Father's Day, and uh, I want to just congratulate all the, the dads here today. This began 112 years ago in 1910. That was the very first Father's Day. There's actually a long history of this, and I won't bore you with it, except to say that for 112 years now, we have been taking a Sunday in June to observe the good and gracious gift that God has given to each of us in a dad. Now, I don't know what kind of a dad you have. I don't know if you had a good dad. I don't know if you had an absent dad. You may be here this morning, and you may not know what it's like to have a dad. You may be here this morning thanking God for the dad you had. You may be here this morning with your dad. Your dad this morning may be in heaven. But wherever your dad is and whoever your father is, James has some things to say about what it is like to be a father. And that's what we're going to do this morning out of James. So let me have you open your Bible to James 1. I'm going to break away from our series a little bit this morning, but I want us to look at what God has to say eyes fatherhood. <clears throat> and I'm not just addressing this to dads, although certainly those of us who are dads are going to take certain... Uh, truths away with us. But this is really something that all of us need to know. I hope today that you have an opportunity to honor your dad. Some of you have asked me this morning, Pastor, why in the world are you wearing a tie today? It is so hot. How many of you wondered that? Don't raise your hand. Do you know that the number one gift on Father's Day, you know what it is? It's a tie. There are over one billion dollars worth of ties sold this weekend. Now, my kids have given me ties. you know, there's, there's, somebody said a hundred million ties are given away every Father's Day. I think I got about 999 of them over the years. Um, so we don't wear ties here very often. My, I'm wearing this tie just you know I'm wearing this tie in honor of my dad today, because my dad and mom watch online from Texas. They're very devoted followers of our church. I'm trying to get him to give to our church. Um, <laughs> that was for you, dad. I hope you were listening. Um, but, but every time I get with my dad, my dad's so excited about the ministry here. They've actually been here, but he'll always weave this little comment in. It'll be son, It would be so nice if you would just wear a tie. So in honor of my dad today, I'm wearing a tie. Dad, take a good look, because it's not coming back. <laughs> There's another reason I'm wearing a tie today, seriously, and, and it's this. You know, it's a time-honored ritual. There was a time, actually, where for about 150 years, no, in the English-speaking world, hardly any man would go out into his workplace without a tie. And so there was a time-honored ritual that dads would pass along to their children. And there's only one ritual that's sort of more sacred than this for a little boy growing up, and that is when his dad taught him how to shave. You remember that? Some of you, uh, your dad taught you how to shave. You wanted to shave as soon as you saw him shaving, and you had nothing to shave. And so as you grew a little bit, uh, your dad taught you how to shave. Now, in the, in, with, with electric razors, that's, it's not like that anymore. But you used to have this little brush, and you used to put it in some foam, and you'd foam up and lather up your face, and then your dad would teach you how to shave without making mincemeat of your face. Well, that was a, that's like hidden wisdom for sons. Well, the other one is how to tie a tie. How do you tie a tie? you realize there's over a hundred different ways to tie a tie? I actually have a visual I want to show you. Those are the eight common knots in tying a tie. Look at the complexity of some of those. How do you tie a tie like that? There are probably two ways to tie a tie that most of us know, and there are these eight, but there's over a hundred. So here's my point. How do you know how to tie a tie? How do you learn how to tie a tie? At some point, somebody taught you. At some point, somebody taught you. And James is going to give us this morning information about something far more significant than learning how to tie a tie. He's going to teach dads how to be dads. How do you, as a dad cultivate a living faith that is, remember, wholehearted, single focused. Some of you got it. Wholehearted, single focused, fully trusting. We didn't say it last week. And some of you came up to me and said, pastor, we did not say the faith statement in James. So we're going to say it again today to make up for last week. How do I as a dad cultivate in my life and in the life of my family and in the life of my children a faith that is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting? And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we come to the book of James. You say, now, where is the idea of fatherhood found in James? And there are two places where James talks about fatherhood. And so I want to show you both of those this morning. In James chapter 1, verse 17 through 18, we find God is described as the Father of lights. Listen to how James says it. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. What in the world is James talking about? He's talking about the fact that God is the creator of lights. And what he's talking about there, he's using that idea of lights. You can go back to Genesis chapter 1, and you'll discover that the first thing that you read is that God created light, and then he created light-bearing light bearing entities in his creation. And so this stands in for all of creation. God has uh, created. He is the origin of all of creation. And, And there is something true about God, the creator, that is not true about his creation. And here it is. God, the creator, never wanders like his creation wandered. When did creation wander from the purpose that God gave it? God never, never wanders. He never deviates from his purposes or his character or his will. But creation has wandered. There is a shadow of turning that happened to creation. So when did creation wander? And we all know the answer to that. The answer to that is in Genesis 3 when creation fell. And when creation fell, God put it under a curse. But God never changes. God never deviates. God never turns away from his purpose. And so he sent down a good gift from above called the wisdom of truth, the word of truth. And he used that truth to give birth to a new creation. And you and I, are the first fruits of that new creation. We will display in our life now what is going to come in the new world when Jesus Christ comes to rule and reign over the Lord, uh, over the earth. God is unchanging. His creation wandered, but God never wanders. And that's why at the end of the book of James... James says, now, if you go and you turn a brother who has wandered back, you will save his soul from sin and death, and you will cover a multitude of sins, and that's exactly what the Son of God did when he came down. God is consistent in his love. He is dependable in his promise, and he is constant in his faithfulness. Let me say that again so we catch it. God is consistent in his love. He is dependable in his promise, and he is consistent in his faithfulness. What a wonderful set of attributes that every dad should aspire to because God is our father. So that's the first place where James talks about fatherhood. Let me show you the second place. It's in James chapter 2. And James reminds us of a very interesting reality that should not be ours, but is. Look at James chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham, do you see the next two words? Was not Abraham our father? So here's my question. How in the world did a group of Gentiles like us come to be able to claim Abraham as our father? How did that happen? And it's very evident here that James is not talking about physical descendancy. He's not talking about our physical heritage, that somehow we are physically tied back to Abraham in the line of, of uh, uh, Isaac and Jacob and, and the Jewish people. That's not what he's talking about. He is actually talking about something very different. He is actually talking about our spiritual heritage our spiritual connection to Abraham. He's he's talking about the very thing that he was talking to a group of physical descendants of Abraham about when, when they were coming against him and they were accusing him and they were getting ready to reject him and they were the Pharisees. You remember the account in John chapter eight when they are in argument with Jesus and they said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus is talking to them about spiritual realities, and they are looking back at Jesus, and they're saying, why are you talking to us about this? Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You aren't doing the deeds of Abraham because Abraham never tried to kill me and you are trying to kill me. Now, here are physical descendants who took pride in their lineage and in their line back to Abraham, and God is talking very directly to them. They said back to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not come on my own initiative, but he sent me. And then he said something very interesting in verse 43. Why do you not understand what I'm saying to you? I mean, this is Jesus, and he's looking at the teachers of the law, the Pharisees who knew the Old Testament, who taught the Old Testament. If you lived in Jerusalem or if you lived in Israel and people wanted to know who are the experts in the law of God, who are the people that know God, who are the people that understand his word, everybody would point to these people. And Jesus looks at those people and he says, Abraham is actually not your father. Because you are not doing the deeds of Abraham. So if you're not doing Abraham's deeds, if Abraham isn't your father, then whose deeds are you doing and who is your father? Jesus said this in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Why do you do the spiritual things that you do. Because one day, the word of truth birthed into you a new birth, a new heart. And you became a descendant of Abraham. And you do the deeds of Abraham. You know what you do? You believe God. This is exactly what James is making the point of in in James chapter two. Abraham believed God And it was counted to him as righteousness. How do you know if you are a spiritual son or daughter of Abraham? And James says, here's how you know. You do the deeds of Abraham. So what did Abraham do? He trusted God. And he obeyed God's word. And dads, one of the greatest things we could do for our families and one of the greatest things we could do for our children is not to leave them a physical inheritance or not even to give them a physical heritage as wonderful as those two things are. The greatest thing we could do for them is what God did for us, and that is to draw them in to a true and living relationship with God as a son or daughter of Abraham. So these are amazing realities. God is our father, James says, and Abraham is our father. So what should we take away from this this morning? Let me sum it up in four statements, and then I want to make five applications, okay? Four statements, five applications. Statement number one, God graciously gives us wisdom as a good and perfect gift. God graciously gives us wisdom as a good and perfect gift. That is exactly what we read in James chapter 1, verse 5. It's what we read again in James chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. This wisdom that God has given us is located in a book that James describes as Scripture. It's written down. And so the implication of that is if God has given you wisdom and he wrote it down in scripture, then you must be a doer of that word and not just a hearer. So truth number one, God graciously gives wisdom as a good and perfect gift from above and he has located this wisdom in his word. Truth number two, Abraham and any of Abraham's descendants after him believe and obey this word. Abraham and all of the true descendants of Abraham after him are marked by two things. They believe and they obey this word. In James chapter 2, was not Abraham our father justified by works? We talked about that when we were making our way through James chapter 2. He, his, his faith was validated. His faith was vindicated by his obedience to God. God's word. He was quick to hear. When God said to him, go up from your home country and leave and go to a land that I will show you, Abraham was quick to hear that. When God said at the end of his life, Abraham, go up to the mountain and sacrifice Isaac there, Abraham was quick to hear. He was slow to speak and he obeyed. Here's the third thing. This wisdom that Abraham followed was actually written down by one of Abraham's descendants named Moses. So God gave wisdom. Abraham heard and obeyed the wisdom and believed God. And then Moses, number three, wrote it down. And so here's the written down part of the wisdom. Deuteronomy chapter six. Moses says this to all the fathers in Israel. He said this, this is the commandment. The statutes and the judgments which the Lord, your God, commanded me to teach you. So Moses says to all the dads, God has given me truth to teach to you. That you might do them in the land where you are going. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord, your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I am commanding you all the days of your life so that your days may be prolonged. And then he said this, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. These words which I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So if Moses were standing here next to Abraham today, he would look at all of us dads and he would say, are you doing that? Are you loving God with all of your heart and with all of your might and with all of your soul? And are you teaching your sons and your grandsons to love God and to follow God? And Moses says, I'm giving you the tool by which God will accomplish this through you in the lives of your children. And it is this word that you hold in your hand. And that's the fourth thing. James exhorts us to follow Abraham's example of faithful obedience to God's word in our own lives, with our own families, and in our own children. He said this in chapter one, verse 21. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not becoming a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this is the man who will be blessed in his labor or in his work. So I want us to make sure we catch that flow. God gave wisdom, and then there's a man named Abraham who received it, believed it, and obeyed it for all of his life. And then later, one of his descendants, Moses, writes it all down, and he commands all the fathers in Israel, the nation that God has chosen, to teach that wisdom to their sons and to their grandsons. And at the heart of that wisdom is a whole lot more than just keep all the rules that are in the Torah. Here's the real objective that God has and that Moses is laying out for the dads in Israel. Teach your sons and teach your grandsons to love God with all of their heart. Do you realize that we can teach our kids to obey all of the spiritual rules and they still will never love God? If the goal is to teach them to obey the rules, we are not accomplishing and we have not understood what Abraham and Moses and James are getting at. Here's the task and here's the challenge that Abraham, Moses and James put in front of me and they put in front of you as you live your life day in and day out. The way that Moses said it was when you stand up and when you sit down and when you go out in the streets Talk about it on the way. In other words, let your life be lived in the atmosphere of teaching your sons and your grandsons this one great objective, to love God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, and with all of their might. So, what wisdom does James have in this little book that we've been looking at That is going to help me do that. Because I know how to keep my kids obeying the rules as long as they're little. Once they get a little older, it's a lot harder. But I can just tell them look, this is what you're going to do. Why? Because this is what I said you're going to do. And I am your dad. Right? I brought you into this world. Don't say the rest of it, <laughs> right? And so, you know, there, there are times, I admit, as as a dad, that sometimes on rare occasions you almost have to take that approach, but that is not going to accomplish the big goal. If that's how we approach this, we are not going to accomplish the big goal. If the goal is just outward performance, then fine, but that's not the goal that God has. That's not the goal that God had for Abraham. That's not the goal that... Moses had for Israel, and that's not the goal that James has for us. What's the goal? The goal is to cultivate in our children a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith in a God they love with their whole heart, with their whole soul, and with their whole might. And their eternal destiny rests there. As embarrassing as this is to say, I I remember as a dad coming to a place where I had to get honest with what I was trying to do as a dad. And I, I had to come to this understanding. Was I trying to raise my two children to obey the rules or was I trying to raise my two children to love God? Those two aren't interconnected, right? There there is a connection. I should say those two are interconnected. Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. So we're not arguing that that part needs to get thrown out. But that becomes often, and it was true in my life as a dad, that became the focus. And the real issue was not that. The real issue was over here in their heart. Am I, as a dad, raising up a young man and a young woman who who have a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith in God, who love God with all of their heart and with all of their might and with all of their soul. And when that becomes the goal, you begin to step back and realize, okay, this is way bigger than just getting them to keep some list of spiritual rules. Don't wear this. Wear that don't listen to this, don't say that, don't go here, don't go there, do this, get up in the morning and do that, before you go to bed at night, make sure you do that. And pretty soon you have all these rules that may be important to you as a family, and it may be the right thing for you to do as a family, but when that becomes your focus, this becomes way in the background, and pretty soon if you're not careful, you can raise people that look really good on the outside, but their heart is far from the Lord. So what does James have to say to people like me who want this in their kids? What do you have to say to people like you? And the minute you start thinking about how do we do this, you begin to realize this isn't just hard. This is impossible. This is impossible. And so James says to us, I have some wisdom for you. And so James is going to give us five pieces of wisdom as dads. And I would suggest that as you hear it, if you're not a dad, maybe you're a mom, or maybe you're a son or a daughter, or maybe you're single, take this wisdom and apply it to yourself. We're going to apply it to our lives as dads, but you apply it to your life as a believer, as a son or daughter of God. So a piece of advice number one, or commitment number one, we could say this. James says, if you want to raise up in your children wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith, a heart that loves God with all of its strength, here's the first thing that has to happen. You have to receive God's word eagerly yourself. It starts here. You have to be a person that receives and embraces God's wisdom eagerly. Listen to what James says in verse 21 of chapter one. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And if you remember, when we were going through chapter one, we looked at that phrase and we noted that the word implanted is the word of truth in verse 18 of chapter one that brought us forth into spiritual life. That word of truth is described in verse 25 of chapter one as the perfect law. The law that perfects us. The law that grows us and maximizes our spiritual life. And then it is the law of liberty. It is the law that frees us and enables us to live our very best life before God. Because it's the life that is shaped as God designed it to be. And James says, now, here's my, here's my statement to you as a dad. Receive that word eagerly. So here's my question. And if James were sitting down across the table from me, he would say this, Pastor Sam, do your children know that you value the Word of God enough to read it regularly and joyfully? So let me just ask us that question as dads. Ready? Here it is. Do our children ever see us reading the Bible? Do our kids know that we value the Word of God enough to be in it on a regular basis. That is one of the greatest gifts you could give your kids. Do my children see evidence that I eagerly seek To obey the word that I'm reading, that I want that word to shape my life. I want that word to shape my decisions. I want that word to be front and center as I think through life and what life should be like for me and for our family. Do my children see that in me? Or is the Bible just a sacred book that I pull out on Sunday on my way to church? or that I have on my phone and and I open up when it's time to listen to the preaching? Do my children see that I have a personal relationship to God through his word? I'm not talking about legalistically getting up at a certain time and making sure, hey, kids, I just want you to know, going into the prayer closet, having devotions. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about do your kids sense as they get around you that the word of God has been flowing in your life? It's been flowing through your life. It's been shaping who you are. It's been shaping the way you think. Does the word of God flavor your your life because you eagerly receive it? So that's commitment number one. If you want to produce a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith in God and in his word, that has to start with your own relationship to God's word. Here's the second piece of advice that James would give us. It's in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and that is this. Persist in God's will joyfully and unflinchingly. James says this, consider it all joy, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, it produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When we went through that portion of James early on in our series, we noted that the way that God grows a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith in us is through the use of a painful tool called trials. Trials are not optional in the Christian life. Trials are not coming in your life because God is angry with you or because God is displeased with you. Trials have a very different purpose in God's agenda And the purpose that a trial has in God's agenda is to grow in you, to deepen in you, and to display through you a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith that doesn't give up when the road gets hard. It doesn't give up when you are hurt. It doesn't give up when people disappoint you. It doesn't get up or, or, or quit when there's a, a roadblock to something that you were counting on in life. And so here's the question that James would say to all of us as we are thinking about raising up a generation of young people in our homes who have a wholehearted, single-focused, fully-trusting faith. How do they see you responding to trials? How do they hear you talk about it as a dad? especially when the trial impacts your whole family. Here's something that happens. Maybe you showed up at work, and and by the end of that day, you were called into your boss's office, and your boss said to you, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this, but our company is downsizing, and you are one of the positions that we're gonna have to let go. And you have to go home, and you gotta explain to your wife and you got to let your kids know what just happened. And at that moment as a Christian, James says you know some things about God. You know some things about God. God has made you promises. Like I will never what? Leave you. I will never abandon you. You know some things about God's provision you know that God knows every one of your needs before you even know them yourself. You know that this moment that was so difficult for you to hear and maybe for your boss to tell you, you know that God knew all of that. And when you come home to pass that news on to your family, what comes out of your mouth is either going to create deeper trust in God and in his word or it is going to create fear and it's going to create anxiety and it's going to make them wonder does God care about our family and so James says when a trial comes into your life will you persist in God's will joyfully and unflinchingly maybe your wife went to the doctor And by the time that doctor's office visit was done, your entire life was impacted by the diagnosis. And what flows out of you as a dad is of utmost importance to the faith of your children. James says, Count it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith is going to deepen that faith. It's going to round out that faith. It's going to mature that faith. James says, here's a third piece of wisdom I want to give you. Receive and embrace God's word eagerly. Persist in God's will joyfully and unflinchingly. But number three, hope in God's promises unwaveringly. Hope in God's promises unwaveringly. And and you could say it this way in James chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. We met two friends of God. Remember the first two of five friends. We noted that in the book of James, there are five friends of God that are going to lay out for us what it is like to love God with our whole heart, with our whole mind, with our whole soul, and with our whole strength. They are going to show us what it is like to be a friend of God with wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith. And the first of those friends was Abraham. And Abraham says, when you hope in God's promises, you will trust and you will obey. When you hope in God's promises, you will trust and obey. And that's exactly what Abraham did was Abraham perfect and we looked at Abraham's life back we took a whole Sunday and looked at Abraham's life and we looked along his life and we saw in these major moments of obedience we also saw incidences where his faith was weak and he faltered like the time he went down to Egypt and he looked over at Sarah and he was afraid that as soon as Pharaoh saw Sarah that, that Pharaoh was going to come in and kill Abraham and take Sarah. And so he said, here's what we're going to do. And he came up with his own plan. And then he had to repent of that. And God was so gracious as he always is. And he embraced Abraham. And we're reminded as we look at Abraham's whole life, not about his failures. Abraham's life was not defined by his failures. And your life doesn't have to be defined by your failures. Because you know what? Every one of us as a dad have had moments where we fail. Abraham's life was not defined by his failures. He was was defined by his faith. He believed God. He believed God. And so when God said to him, Abraham, I want you to leave Ur, this beautiful city where you have all this power and all this influence, and everybody knows your name, and I want you to go to a faraway land, and I've got a city that I'm going to give you there, Abraham went. And then God said to Abraham, I want you to take the son that you've waited for for all of these years through whom all of the promises depend and I want you to take that son and I want you to sacrifice. And Abraham went. Abraham believed and Abraham obeyed. Even when he couldn't see. James says, let me tell you about another friend, Rahab. Rahab persevered faithfully while she waited. Abraham believed and obeyed. Rahab believed and kept obeying when there was no evidence yet that God would keep his word to her. And so as soon as the spies left her home, they said to her, do not betray us. And for at least a week or more, probably closer to a month, here is a woman with everything to lose banking on the promise of two spies who are the enemies of her people, and she has to decide if she is going to keep faith with them and with Joshua. And she did. And on the day that Jericho fell, she was delivered. And you know, Dad and Mom, as you live out your faith, we are like Rahab. We do not know fully what is coming but we do know the God who is bringing whatever is coming. And we need to be like Abraham and trust and obey, and then we need to be like Rahab and keep obeying no matter what comes. Do my children see that in me? Have my children seen a consistent example in my life when the way gets hard and it's difficult and it doesn't make sense that we are just going to obey God? Our family's going to follow God. Our family's going to obey God. I know that I can't explain all of it to you. I understand that it's difficult for us, but, but we're going to be Abraham-like in our faith. We're going to follow God. We're going to be like Rahab. We're going to keep on doing it, and we're going to keep on doing it. And I, I know you, you know—I know that the deliverance is coming, but it hasn't come yet, so we're just going to keep on being faithful. James says, this is wisdom for dads. How can I encourage my children to trust and follow in hard places unless they see it first in me? How can I expect my kids to remain faithful to God in their own journey and in their own furnace when they don't see it in me, in my journey, and in my furnace as a dad? So James says, hope in God's promises unwaveringly. Here's the fourth thing. Embrace God's values and God's priorities unswervingly. Embrace God's values and God's priorities unswervingly. So receive and embrace God's word, right? Persist in God's will, joyfully endure trials, Hope in God's promises unwavering like Abraham did and like Rahab did. But number four, embrace God's values and priorities unswervingly. In James chapter 1, we read this. Remember this? To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And it's been a while since we looked at that phrase. So can I just take a minute and remind us what that phrase meant to us? James is incredible in the sense that he continually brings us back to big ideas in the book. And this is one of the biggest. The 12 tribes, the last time they were all together in the same kingdom as one big unified kingdom was in the days of David and Solomon. That's the last time the kingdom of Israel, the 12 tribes were all together. After Solomon's son Rehoboam came, those kingdoms split and 10 tribes went to the north and two tribes stayed in the south and now you had a broken kingdom. The last time the broken kingdom was in the same geographical country was in 722 BC before the Assyrian army came and took the 10 tribes of the north away into captivity and they never have returned. They're still dispersed today. And the rest of your Old Testament is about the coming of a champion who is going to restore God's people. He's going to bring the kingdom of God. He's going to restore the people of God. And by the time we get to James chapter 1, verse 1, that champion has arrived. It's James' older brother, Jesus. And James says he has gathered the tribes you are the new people of God. But those tribes, that new people of God that we're talking about, is still dispersed. The kingdom in which they are to rule has not yet come. And from that little phrase, we get a big idea. Here's a big idea. There is the kingdom of God, and you and I are part of that, when the word of truth birthed us and granted us new life, We were adopted into God's family, and we were made a citizen of God's kingdom. So we are part of this big kingdom. But God has placed us in all the little kingdoms of the world that make up the kingdom of darkness. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount described it this way, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, and he's pretty much saying you've been scattered in all the little kingdoms of the world. And so we made the observation that in our own little church, Part of the big kingdom of God, we happen to live in a bunch of little kingdoms that make up the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Greenville, the kingdom of Easley, the kingdom of Williamston, the metropolis kingdom, the magnificent kingdom of Pelzer, right? If you know Pelzer, you're like, what? It's about three houses. Simpsonville. I mean, whatever little kingdom you're in where you live, that's the kingdom of darkness. And as a member, a citizen of the kingdom of God, and as a member of God's family, you are to represent the values and the priorities of that kingdom in all the little kingdoms where God has placed you. And so, if that's true, we're going to have to embrace the value of God's kingdom. And that's why in chapter 1, verse 9, James says, let let, let me reorient. Let me just shuffle the deck of your life and let me reorient your priorities. Let the brother of humble circumstance glory in his high position. Let's talk about poverty. If you find a Christian who is poor, James says, let me reshuffle the deck. Let him glory when he realizes the incredible position that God has given to him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The meek will inherit the earth. And let the brother of high degree, right? Let the brother of high degree glory in his humiliation. The rich glory in his humiliation. Because God has helped him to see that his security and his significance are not in the wealth that he has. But in the humility that has come into his life when God humbled him and, re- and he had to come to realize that like the, like the poor man next to him, he was a sinner before God. And so God reshuffles the entire deck and he says to the people that he's writing to, some of you are wealthy and some of you are in poverty, but you need to embrace kingdom values in whichever of those positions you're in. If you're, if you're in poverty, rejoice in the high exaltation that God has given you in his kingdom and live for that kingdom. And if you're wealthy, Rejoice in the fact that God has humbled you and take all of that wealth and use it for kingdom values. Do my children see that in me? Do I rejoice in true and lasting wealth that is coming in his kingdom? Or am I just like my unsaved neighbor who covets and strives for the wealth and possessions of this fading away world? I mean, here I am as a dad, and I have to ask myself this question. When my kids look at the things we have as a family, our cars, our home, the money we might have or might not have, do my kids see kingdom values attached to that, or do they see those things as building my kingdom? I could put it this way. Do my kids know that we don't own those things, that we're just stewards of them? Or have I acted like an owner? This is my stuff and this is my money and this is whatever whatever it is and I'm going to do whatever I want with it and I'm going to portion off a little bit for the Lord. Or do they actually see kingdom values lived out in me in the way I possess the things that God has entrusted to me? That's a very deep question for us this morning. It's not just living according to the values of God's kingdom, it's living by the priorities of that kingdom. Because until the values of God's kingdom drive me, my priorities are always going to be different. My priorities are, are always going to be, what am I living for? Which kingdom matters most to me? Is, is my life lived to get more of the stuff that this world offers, or is my life lived to advance kingdom priorities? My mom was here a few weeks ago visiting, and uh, right before she left, she gave me a little book, and she said, son, I really want you to read this book. And uh, so I said, sure. You know, when your mom asks you to do something, you do it, right? I hope you do. (laughs) So she handed me a little book, and I looked down at the title of the book, and it was the prayer journal of a woman named Rosalind Goforth. How many of you know Jonathan Goforth? How many of you have heard the name Jonathan Goforth? Okay, Jonathan Goforth lived at the turn of the last century. He was a missionary to China, and he followed Hudson Taylor. He and his wife Rosalind went to China in the 1800s, so like 1880, and they were there for 40 years. They were there for the Boxer Rebellion. And when Hudson Taylor, or when uh, Jonathan Goforth, rather, died, his wife Rosalind wrote a biography of his life, of their journey. They had 11 children. They buried five of those children in China. And Rosalind wrote this biography. And I had read the biography, but I didn't know about this little book. This little book is her own journal of very specific things that God did. In very specific ways that God answered prayer. Now, you'll remember, this is what Hudson Taylor said to them as they were going to the part of China, the northern part of China where they were headed. Nobody had ever been there before, and so he said this, we as a mission, this is Hudson Taylor to them, we as a mission have tried for 10 years to enter that province from the south and have only just succeeded. It is one of the most anti-foreign provinces in China. Brother, if you enter that promise, you must go forward on your knees. That's a very famous line in missionary history. Years later, Rosalind, remembering that statement from Hudson Taylor, said this, Our strength as a mission... And as individuals during those years that were so fraught with danger and difficulty lay in the fact that we did realize the hopelessness of our task apart from God. So, Dad, let me apply this to you. Apart from God's aid, you and I have no hope of cultivating in our children a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith. This isn't going to come because you beat it into them or you preach it into them or you force it down their throats. This is not going to be accomplished in the lives of my children or in the lives of your children without divine aid. Brothers, we must go forward on our knees. The story of her life and that of her husband was marked by a remarkable dependence on prayer for 40 years they saw prayer after prayer after prayer answered and and i just have to tell you as i was reading this little book i went back and i pulled the biography off my shelf and i reread the biography and i just here's what happened in my own heart i was like god i i want these kinds of answers to prayer why aren't they in my life? Why aren't they in our lives? And I think anybody reading a book like that would have that. And I came across a statement that Rosalind made halfway through the book that struck me as the reason for all of the remarkable praying that she was able to do and, and Jonathan Goforth was able to do as well as for the reason that my prayers are so anemic. And here's what she said. During those first weeks and months Hundreds and even thousands crowded to see us. Day by day, we were literally besieged. Even at mealtimes, our windows were banked with faces. The question ever before us in those early days was this, how to make the most of this opportunity, which would never come again in this period of curiosity how to win the friendship of a people who showed in a hundred ways their hatred and their distrust of us and how to reach their heart with the wonderful message of the Savior's love. The answer to this prayer, she went on to say, as is often the case, depended largely on us. We had to be made willing to pay the price that such praying demands. And that just jumped off the page at me. What was the price Jonathan Rosalind had to be willing to pay? And how did God make them ready to pay it? One of the most impelling moments in the book is when Rosalind, in a moment of utter transparency, recorded a moment in her life when her husband had taken her on a 24-day river trip. And on that trip, he was alerting her that the work they had been doing, the comfortable home they had built, that was done, and God was calling them to go even further into the north. And this is what she said, what this proposition meant to me can scarcely be understood by those unfamiliar with China and Chinese life. Smallpox, Diphtheria, scarlet fever, and other contagious diseases are chronic epidemics in China. And outside the parts ruled by foreigners, China is absolutely devoid of sanitation. Four of our children had died. To take the three remaining little ones then with me into such conditions and dangers seemed literally like stepping with them over a precipice into the dark and expecting to be kept In my innermost soul, I knew the call was coming from God, but I would not pay the price. My one plea in refusing to enter that life was the risk to the children. Again and again, my husband urged that the safest place for me and the children was in the path of duty, that I could not keep them in our comfortable home back at the mission statement station, but God could keep them anywhere. Now, what do you say to a couple like that? I mean, every parent, every mom here can resonate with what Res- Rosalind was going through at that moment. There's not a one of us. What do you say? At that moment, a helpful Christian acquaintance from back home said this. He wrote him a letter and he said this. Say, old boy, have you lost any of that flaming optimism you carried with you to China? Has getting down to brass tacks changed your view on missions? Can you imagine getting that in a letter? Here's what Jonathan Goforth said to his wife in response to that letter. Oh, that the eyes of Christians at home could be opened to the need of these neglected millions. Optimistic? How could I help but be optimistic when I believe with Carrie that the prospects are as bright as the promises of God? Do you believe that? Or is that just something we read and it stirs us in a missionary biography? Dads, you may not be called to take your family across an ocean. You may not be called to do what Rosalind and Jonathan Goforth were called to do, but I promise you as a dad, you are going to be called on from time to time to do hard things for God. Things that will be, in your mind, costly and impossible and risky And you're going to get on your knees as Jonathan Goforth got on his and say, God, are you sure? And Rosalind really meant what she said when she said, God has to make us willing to pay the price for the prayers. You yeah, know, I read a book like that and I long to see God answer my prayer. I mean, you read this book and it's stunning the kind of ways in which God answered their prayers. And then I look at the prayers I pray and there's, they're so anemic. And part of it is I am really not willing for God to totally reorient and reshape the way I think about my life. I have this idea of what life should look like and what it should be like. And, and how I should be received, and what should come my way, because I serve God, and it's not like that at all. And sometimes God has to totally reorient my life, and he has to reshape the way I think about my life, and what I value in life. Because I can stand up here as your pastor, and I can say to you, you know what? Everything that, that I own in this world is just passing away Stuff. My kids know the truth behind that statement. Because they go home and they live with me and they listen to me talk about all the stuff all the time. Or they hear me or they watch me complain about this or that. And and, and all of a sudden what I say up here to you is completely undercut by what I do in my life and what my kids see. Because you know what? At the end of the day, your kids no. They know. They know what's going on in your life. When they ding your life, the ring that comes back tells them everything. And if you're going to have a young person that's going to have a prayer of having a wholehearted, single focus, fully trusting faith, at some point, you're going to have to endure hard things. You are going to have to do what Jonathan Go forth did no wonder God opened China up through men and women like this. And you know what? God may want to reach people right here in Easley, South Carolina with people like this. God may want to reach people in West Greenville with people like this. God may want to reach people right here in Anderson or in Pelzer with people like this. With people who are living out kingdom values and kingdom priorities and who are willing to do hard things For the gospel, and here's the final thing, and we're done. All of this will go nowhere. All of this will go nowhere if we have not developed grace-flavored, gospel-shaped relationships that are bold. All of this will go nowhere if we have not developed grace-flavored, gospel-shaped relationships that are bold. James chapter five verse nineteen, my brothers, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. James says, "Be a friend of God, not of the world. Love others more than you love self. Serve people impartially." with no expectation. You know, when we serve others, it's surprising how often we have expectations, and when those expectations don't get met, what happens? We get jaded in our service. We're done. Love others, serve people impartially, maintain an unstained gospel presence in the world, and endure mistreatment patiently and gracefully. Why? Because there is a sinner that God wants to turn from his ways. And you know what? It may be that if you live this way with gospel-shaped, grace-flavored relationships, the sinner that will one day be turned to God may be your own son or your own daughter. You say, Pastor, how do I do this? How do I do this? I don't know even where to start. And here's what James would say to you. Here's what he'd say to me. Start here. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God. Humble yourself and come to God and say, God, I don't even know where to start as a dad. But all I know to do is to come to you and ask you to reshuffle the deck for me. I want you to reshape me. I want you to reorient my priorities. I want you to make me willing to be the servant that you want me to be so that in me, my children and my wife can see a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith that has no expectations except one day to stand before you and hear the words, well done good and faithful servant. Would you bow your head this morning as we close? Maybe you're a dad here and you're feeling in your heart the very thing I felt as I was preparing this message. There are just times when, as a pastor, you stand up to preach something to the people you love and that God is called you to shepherd and you realize God this has to start in me I know I have to say it on Sunday but this has to start in my life and that's where I found myself this week now I'm sitting across the desk for almost 30 hours with James and he's exposing all of this in me all of the unmet expectations I have all of the priorities that, that start to get revealed, what I really value, how I handle it when it gets hard. I mean, I say all the right things, but how I really handle it when it gets hard. And then you read the story of Rosalind and Jonathan go forth, and you realize there is so much work. God, you have to, there's so much work to be done in my life. And all I can tell you is when you draw near to God, you just get on your knees and you say to God, God, I'm drawing near to you. I am desperate. Draw near to me. And the God of Abraham and the God of Rahab will come beside you. He'll put his arm around you. And he will make you willing. And he will use you in ways you never anticipated. But it has to start there. You have to come to God. And you have to say to God, God, I want this. I don't know what it's going to cost. I don't know what I've got to reorient. I don't know any of that yet. You know all of it. I'm just drawing near to you and I want you to draw near to me. And no matter what the cost or what the outcome, I want you to do whatever you have to do in my life as a dad to create in me a wholehearted, single focused, fully trusting faith. I wonder if you're a dad here this morning, if you would just pray that with me. I'm going to pray that for myself out loud, but I want you to pray it in your own heart as a dad. And I want you to pray it with a heart of faith because we have a God who answers prayers. Father God, I come to you and I'm thankful that your word is so powerful. I thank you that it is so encouraging and so filled with hope. But I also thank you that at times it sits us down and it graciously exposes what you see in our lives things that, Lord, we, we see and then just walk away from, like the guy in James 1. We look into your word, we hear it, we see it, we kind of nod our head at it, and we walk away unchanged. And as a dad, Lord, I don't want that to happen to me. I want you to continue to expose things in my life to me so that I can become more conformed to your image. Lord, I pray that you would do that for every one of us in this room, but especially for us as dads. We desire to raise a generation of sons and daughters who love you with all of their heart. So, Lord, help our hearts to love you fully as dads. Lord, we desire for the word of God to shape the thinking of our children. So, Lord, would you use that word to shape our thinking? Lord, we desire to see our children live for the right kingdom. So help me and help every one of us here to live for that kingdom, truly. Lord, help us to endure hardship. Help us to weather disappointment. And most of all, Lord, cultivate in us by whatever means you need to. Make us willing to pay the price for you to answer this prayer that you would cultivate in us a wholehearted, single focused, fully trusting faith in you. We love you and we desperately want you to work in our lives, in our families, in our children. And for that to happen, Lord, we want to draw near to you so that you can work in our lives first. And we'll pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.